Hello, welcome. Thank you for joining me and Angela for our Singella treatment of Dracana. Um, we recorded the overview class for Dracana separately. And when Angela and I were talking a lot yesterday, hours, audios back and forth all day to the wee hours where she is in Italy, um, we decided that we would pull out what we were going to, our thoughts, about Dracana um, and make a separate class. Mm. So that's what we're going to do. Um, and we're still going to be recording um, a Medusa episode later on this month. Right now, we're just focusing on Dracana, which basically means she dragon. I love that it means that. So yeah. let's dive in. Uh, if you're watching this instead of listening, we do have a slideshow that will be walking us through just to kind of frame the discussion. So, Angela, where are you landing with Dracana? I just love the principle of the, the she dragon. <clears throat> it's very mother of dragons, and it evokes in a very visceral way this connection between the woman and the serpent. But not even, you know, it's not very subtle. It's kind of like there's a kind of fire-breathing power inside women, inside the feminine principle generally, that merits respect. This is what I think of when I think of Dracana. And I also think like Dracana is, you know, there is a fearsome element mm. to Dracana, to, you know, like the she dragon. Yeah. Or the she serpent, because that's another translation of Dracana can also mean kind of like mythical serpent figure, not exactly snake, but connected to it. Um, like that she's fearsome and that she's in charge and, you know, she's sovereign and deeply connected to like the underworld and all those things that are that snakes, of course, symbolize. And I think, you know, going into this, maybe we should just start at the start. So I put up this slide that has a modern painting of Hecate by someone named Artemisia Synchroma that depicts Hecate as having a serpent head, three-headed Hecate with a serpent head. And the yeah. other image is our uh, Covina illustration of the triple goddess, where there's a serpent that's wrapped around um, Hecate in the front and then extends back to one of the figures behind her. Yeah, so, you might want to make the presentation bigger so people oh. can see this more clearly. Okay, let me do it. <clears throat> okay, is that better? Yeah, a lot okay. better. Everyone listening will be wondering what's going on, but we can see it now. Um, so in terms of this epithet of Dracana and the serpent goddess, there's just so much for us to kind of explore because this is like one of the, the biggest, it, it, it is like a basket full of snakes to start talking about the serpent and the goddess. There's so much, right? Like there is yeah. so much in here. <clears throat> so this is our entry point um, is this title of Dracana that is applied to the goddess Hecate in different places. So that's got, what got me curious about what Dracana was. So Hecate has many serpentine and dragon-esque um, epithets. So I just put a list of them on this slide. So Dracana, Ouroboros, Pira Dracontonzonos, I got it out, which, <laughs> wearing she who wears serpents. Uh, Parapnoa, which is to breathe fire. Um, let's try the next one. Do you want to try the next one? Spiral Dracontazonis. Which means serpent covered, uh, <laughs> which is different than serpent wearing. Um, Zono Dracontos, which means dressed in serpents. And you can have the last one. Taro Dracaina. Bull snake dragon. The bull snake dragon. So. Yeah all these and they weren't just applied to hecate there are many goddesses mm -hmm. um like medea had a lot of these applied to her so there were different goddesses that were associated with snakes dragons serpents and so on and then of course medusa um which is the the i guess the the figure that we would most people would know as being a serpent goddess 
Of course. So, and then I put a, a quote from Apollonius Rhodius, just one of the examples of how the ancient writers depicted Hecate in certain texts and how snakes were associated with her. So Hecate Brimo, so Brimo is an epithet that's used for Hecate, Persephone, Artemis, etc. that basically means badass bitch, uh, right? That, that's what we would, you know, um, and, you know, Hecate Brimo comes up from the abyss. She was garlanded by fearsome snakes that coiled themselves round twigs of oak. Uh, the twinkle of a thousand torches lit the scene and hounds of the underworld barked shrilly all around her. And this imagery of when Hecate is evoked in different stories, like it's repeated by different authors, that when she comes, <clears throat> snakes come, the earth cleaves, like there's all these things. So, you know, authors, um, you know, speaking of Hecate back then really played up this connection with her and the snake. And then I put, uh, so this is the Pergamon tablet. And so this is Hecate here, uh, Persephone and Demeter or Ceres. And this is just an image of Hecate holding the serpent. So goddesses <clears throat> often were depicted and specifically, I think a lot of un more underworld goddesses, wouldn't you say? But then there's also this complicated business with snakes and like what we might think of like the upper world, the mystical as well, right? So it's not one or the other because this episode of Zono Dracontos comes actually from like this Neoplatonic philosophical te text known as the Chaldean Oracles. So snakes and Hecate, it, it's, it's, it's complicated already, but in we go. Yeah, yeah. But it's also, when you think about it, it also kind of makes perfect sense because remember Hecate, like Hermes is one of the only gods who can move through the three worlds. Mm -hmm. And um, snakes also have this quite liminal quality. You know, they can be under the ground, they can be above ground, but they can also be in water. So they share this quality as well. And, you know, and Hermes symbol of the caduceus, right? With this, the snake. Yes. So, I mean, we're not getting, we're not, Hermes always has to make an appearance when we get together. So that's, his attention for today. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I went back to one of the, the more recent kind of modern academic text on Hecate, which is actually a master's thesis mm. from several decades ago. So this is not like classical and it's also not Victorian. It's more approaching like how we might understand uh, the goddess from a scholarly perspective today. So this thesis explores Hecate before the fifth century BC, which is an important kind of delineation because it's before Hesiod's Theogony, like, so it's kind of before Hecate, sorry, it's, it includes Hecate, it includes the Theogony, but it's before kind of that triple goddess Hecate cleaving the earth the Hecate of like Euripides Medea, it's like, you know, before all of this, who was that Hecate? Um, but you also see even in these earlier depictions of Hecate, so we're talking about like, this is more than 2,500 years ago that she's depicted with snakes. And I did manage to find this image of, so this is thought to be one of the earliest images depicting Hecate specifically, like not just a great mother goddess figure. Hmm. Um, and if you look at it, she's got her hounds, of course. And then she also has snakes for hair. Very Gorgon-like. Yeah, yeah, very Gorgon-like. And then these are snake arms too, which you can hardly see, but the description says that they are snake arms. Uh, so this idea of Hecate as a great, goddess figure which is that was Hesiod's Hecate that was Hecate kind of before the fifth century BCE um, and things really start to change in terms of how Hecate and all goddesses were perceived and then that this kind of change like really takes place over like a thousand years wouldn't you say like it 
Yeah. It starts around a couple of centuries before the Common Era, and then it really kind of takes off into the Roman Era. Yeah, sort of flattening her into the Greek color band. Yeah, the Greek, like that color band where she had certain abilities and meant this, and it, it wasn't like she had a lot of room to be, to have people see her however they wanted to see her. It was like she had to do this. And a lot of that comes from all of these stories, like the plays that were performed um, and the stories that were told, right, about all of the figures in Greek mythology, that there is this kind of flattening where they become like very one note characters, not diverse, rich characters like they were before. Yeah, yeah. So I found this amazing book by Daniel Ogden, who um, has written other books that I really like. I think he has the one on magic. So these books are published by Oxford um, University Press. So they're very academic, but I, but he seems to have like a wry sense of humor that somehow he manages to put into these books. Um, so his book, The Dragon in the West, actually has a whole section on Dracana. So diving into this, you know, he answers this question so he says that there's many uses of it that seem to signify a creature of more or less pure serpentine form. It was almost always imbued with a female humanoid form too. So there was always some kind of merger of Dracana. It wasn't mm. pure dragon or serpent. Um, it had female characteristics. And I chose this magical coin depicting three-headed, six-armed, Hecate wielding many things in all those arms of hers, but beside her is like a, a Dracana, a dragon figure that is purely like creature form and doesn't seem to have um, feminine aspects to it. So, so it's, it was this interesting term used to describe she dragons, but the she dragon could look a bunch of different ways. Yeah, yeah. There's this, uh, I was thinking about the relationship between the dragon and the snake, because like we were talking about earlier, the snake by default is a bit of a liminal figure, but it also kind of seems to me that the relationship between snake and dragon kind of connects to this idea of beast masters, like the notion that um, all animals have kind of like a parent totem that lives in the spirit world that you have to that's, that has all the characteristics of this animal, but that you have to respect because it's also magical. And it's also the reason why these animals continue to appear in physical form. So if you hunt them or you kill them by accident, you have to in some way pay respect to the beast master. I suspect that this is how the, you know, sort of the dragon principle comes, like sort of enters into, into human mythology. Because um, if you look at, Asian mythology, like we looked at Asian mythology a few months ago, right, when we were looking at sort of the Chinese stories, for example, about the dragon. Um, the dragon in Chinese mythology shares pretty much the same characteristics as the snake in these times, you know, like the wisdom, you know, the careful movement through strategy and conception, all of those things. This is so interesting to me because I think in like our Western culture, this, the fact that the serpent, the snake um, is like you said, it's like the natural world version of the mystical dragon. Like I think a lot of us wouldn't naturally make that connection because of the way snakes have been so vilified in our culture. And also dragons have changed a lot. Right, and I was gonna say, that. and also dragons have changed a lot, right? So dragons are now like these, um, you know, these creatures that usually have legs and can walk mm -hmm. on land. So there would be a different, that's a different thing. So not so serpentine anymore, because now they have legs. Yeah. And they fly. So, <clears throat> you know, it's just interesting to think of like how our understanding of snakes and our understanding of dragons in the West has changed. Mm -hmm. And what would have been when, you know, the term Dracana was first being used, like how they would have understood this term. 
they would have been able to hold space for what you said that you know like there's a beast master and then yeah. there's the lowly serpent and they are all on a continuum yeah it's also i'm kind of wondering i don't know maybe you know more about this than i do but based on your last slide i'm kind of assuming that these more like you know animal depictions of hecate particularly hecate with the with the snake in the middle of her triformis figure mm -hmm. between the dog and the horse um, they appear much earlier than depictions of Hecate as more of the classical maiden mother crone figure, right? Or like Hecate alongside Persephone and Demeter. Is that correct? Well, something that's really interest <clears throat> interesting to me is that so descriptions of Hecate, like having a serpent head and so on, um, they show up in different places. Okay. Right? So you think you've got to think about like the Greek magical papyri which is basically like a collection of ancient rituals and magical spells that exist today. Um, and then you think of like all of the, the plays and the stories as a very, so that's like a creative expression of Hecate. Yeah. And then you would think of maybe records of like the temple of Hecate, like, you know, actually like there's not a lot in that area, right? So a lot of when we're talking about Hecate is coming from the world of art, right? Not, it's not coming from the world of religion. It's coming from the world of art. Yeah. Whether it's the Orphic hymn or, you know, how Homer describes her or how Ovid describes her, like it's coming from that camp, not the religious camp. Yeah. And so with Hecate and this business of snakes, it's a, in a lot of this classical like literature. Um, but interestingly, in, you know, the uh, Homeric hymns, specifically the Homeric hymn to Demeter, like snakes don't play a part in that. So it's not like she was always with the snakes, even when in um, art and literature. Yeah. So there, so it kind of like is scattered around, you know, like there's always Hecate's, Hecate and snakes. One interesting thing I will say is that in the medieval times when there was like kind of a concentrated almost um, propaganda revivalist propaganda so like when christianity first became institutionalized there was a lot of anti-pagan gods propaganda like in um the Pistis Sophia and other texts like that. So where snakes were really, oh, Hecate has snakes with her. And so she's evil and she has a snake head and she's evil and she's, you know, all those things. But then that kind of happened, like that, that happened again in the medieval period where different authors and artists started depicting her with a snake head again. Hmm. Okay. So, so but with so, a different purpose, basically. But for a different purpose. So it was like, you know, earliest accounts of Hecate having serpentine aspects, it's she's an expression of the great mother figure. Snakes are about birth, death, all of it. You know, they're the circle of life. And then it's like in these works, these great plays that are still with us today, for example, and like in Metamorphoses, then her snakes, it's more like she's the dread goddess associated with magic. Snakes are associated with magic and mystery. That's and true. then you know, like in, and then in early anti-pagan books, the snake is evil, she is evil, she's associated with the snake. And then in the medieval times, again, um, you know, the snake is evil, she's evil. So, you know, it's this whole um, like lineage that Hecate yeah. has of being connected to the snake. But then what that means in a society at the time changes, right? Yeah. Yeah, this is this is really interesting because, OK, the way that I'm thinking about it now is that a sort of like the anthropomorphizing of people or sort of like creating these these mixes of people and animals. It's a really effective way to demonstrate the vastness of um, that entity's power, right? Like Hecate with the head of the snake and the dog of the horse, like it very easily evokes to me just because you think of the particular characteristics of these animals, it's a very nice shortcut. Um, I think of the dog of, as Hecate's capacity as guardian and the horse as Hecate's capacity to sort of like, you know, lead and guide you through. And then the snakes, you know, obviously you have that regenerative power, this heal and harm, it's very vast. 
And this is also true for the other goddesses, right? Like, like Persephone and Demeter. So it kind of seems to me that when the Triformis is sort of flattened into being only human figures and just putting all of these goddesses together, basically, that might be part of how they were flattened and the vastness of their power was sort of flattened. Like now they're just maiden mother and crone and you have some little allusions to their regenerative nature, but it's purely human. It's not extra human, for mm. example. And then, um, yeah, like you mentioned, um, when the snake kind of gets rebranded <laughs> um, into being evil and the worst, and I know we'll talk about this more later, um, it reappears again, but this time to associate women, not with this vast formidable power that should be respected, but with, you know, danger and evil and the occult. That's really interesting. It's interesting, right? And so it's all wrapped up in that business. And you can yeah. see, you know, this kind of trajectory that not just Hecate, but other goddesses and their animals um, kind of go through as patriarchy becomes more yeah. Um, established. Yeah, like the animals basically become like pets. Yes, <laughs> they're pets or they're there to serve man. Right. So the and the animals that are no good to men become vilified. Yeah. Um, so serpent certainly like it's mysterious. It's definitely not like when you think of like bears, right? And we did a class on bears quite a while ago. So bears mm. look really human. They have a lot of human aspects. So like the bear didn't get vilified when this separation was made between man and the natural world but bears are a lot like humans yeah so yeah. I, I often thought like you know we have the whole garden of eden story and you know i've always been a, a someone who asked questions i remember as a kid sitting in church being like like why a snake like you know like i know they're very kind of mysterious and different but why is like why a snake why not something more dangerous like lions are more dangerous yeah right it's quite rare that most people are going to just sort of like run into a snake in the middle of a city <laughs> yeah. right yeah or and you know like most snakes really don't want to have anything to do with us yeah they're trying to they feel your vibrations they're trying to get away before you even notice they're there yeah so it's interesting so it's kind of like you know in indiana jones like why did it have to be snakes so like why did it have to be snakes in the garden of eden and i think in all the years since, you know, what I've learned is that because serpents were so connected to the feminine principle. Yeah. And yeah. in order for the feminine principle to be destroyed, which is really what the point of that story is. Yeah. Um, that this animal that had been so associated with her had to be the devil, like literally the devil, right? And yeah, represent all that was pagan. Yeah. And I know we're going to get more into it before we move like beyond kind of just the general talking about Dracona. I wanted to briefly mention Scylla, a monster that I know we both have an affection for, mm -hmm. um, who is sometimes featured with a fish tail, but also very serpentine. And, you know, she has all of her dog legs and serpentine tail under yeah. her skirt. Um, yeah. And, you know, is, uh, a devourer of men. So there's also this idea that in these hero stories, like the Odyssey, for example, that, you know, the serpent, the female serpent figure is out to destroy the hero. I love that you brought this up because I was just reading uh, our friend Leonard Schlein, The Alphabet Versus the Goddess. Yeah. And uh, he brings up the Cadmus story, you know, Cadmus like trying to save Europa. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's that, there's that, you know, he goes through this whole hero's journey and he has to like do all this stuff like the heroes always have to do. But he does have to kill this like this giant snake figure. And, um, and Schlein says something like, you know, there's a particularity to the story because he also has to pull out the teeth and plant it. And he ties that directly to vagina dentata, you know, like this idea of uh, this anxiety of in our labias, there are teeth, like there's a castrating quality that's a, that's coming out in the story. Okay. So now we're getting psychoanalytic <laughs> already. It wasn't me. It was Leonard. It was, it was Leonard. Leonard. <laughs> okay. So I mean, <laughs> 
but like I think there's so much here, right? The whole mm -hmm. idea that the vagina as devourer of manhood is an idea that it's, you know, in terms of psychoanalysis, of course, Freud was a big advocate for this kind of thinking and yeah. some of his students. Of course. But it's an older, it's an old idea. And, you know, are these dragon, the high, you know, the the Hydra, like all of these, St. George and the dragon, like what are they really killing, right? Like what are they yeah. conquering? When we start yeah. to unpack like how Dracana, how the dragon was viewed, um, you know, even we're just leaving all the male dragons out in the, we're leaving them in the parking lot for now and just talking about, you know, feminine dragons, like, and where along the line did dragons just like are dragons just masculine like i don't even know if people know what gender dragons are anymore i don't know like but i'm also not sure if it matters because it is true that when snakes appear in christian mythology for example they are usually dog whistles for driving out goddess culture right like the yeah snake getting all the snakes out of a village um i imagine that it's the case for dragons like if you look at apollo slaying pythos the great mother snake um, in order to take, you know, her capacity to see the future and appropriate that for himself. That feels very much like a, like a knight and dragon story, you know? And then he can and then the Pythia, which I think next month we're getting into the Sibyls and we'll be talking about the Pythia. Mm. So, you know, and that the Pythia, these women priestesses were born from this. So it's like that that masculine need to kind of control the the female dragon power, you know, the mystical yeah. great serpent who knows all and is all power. So, yeah. and back to Scylla. So Scylla is uh, from Circe, who we did last month. So you can see you start to see how these Dracana figures pop up in a lot of mythology. Yeah, and they're packed with meaning whenever they do. They are. Um, just continuing with Ogden's book. Um, so we looked at that on the two slides ago was when I had that earliest identifiable portrait of Hecate. Um, so it shows her with the snakes. He just goes on and talks about that. And then he talks about um, an Aristophanes fragment that talks about her Hecate of the earth. So Chthonia ro roiling coils of snakes. So, and then there's this really striking example of Hecate and snakes um, that I actually included here. And I love this passage. Do you want to read this? Can you see it okay to read it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, why don't you read this one? I saw a fearsome woman approaching me, almost half a stadium's length high. In her left hand, she held a torch and in her right, a sword 20 cubits long. This is very Book of Revelations. Is. Below the waist, she was snake-footed, Ophiopus. Above it, she resembled a gorgon, so far as concerns the look in her eyes and her terrible appearance, I mean. Instead of hair, writhing snakes fell down in curls around her neck, and some of them coiled over her shoulders. The goddess's dogs were taller than Indian elephants, similarly black and shaggy, with dirty matted hair. Anyway, when I saw her, I came to a halt and at the same time turned back the seal ring that the Arab had given me to the inside of my finger. Hecate stamped on the ground with her dragon foot, Dracontioi Podi, and created a huge chasm as deep as Tartarus. Presently, she jumped into it and was gone. I steeled myself and bent over it after taking hold of a tree that was growing near the hole to stop myself falling into it headlong from vertigo. Then I saw everything in Hades. Pure Phlegathon, the lake, Cerberus, and the dead, whom I could see so clearly that I even recognized some of them. I got a good view of my father, still dressed in the clothes in which we had buried him. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Like, you feel like revelations, Rumpelstiltskin. Right? <laughs> like, and it also so reminds me like of like how Aleister Crowley and um, some other occult authors yeah kind of fixate on hecate like this mm -hmm. that this is hecate yeah. that she's not a great mother fig, fig, uh, figure she is like you said this very like flattened um monochromatic uh, version of her like what uh Karenia and young were talking about like this is mm -hmm. hecate 
Yeah. And yeah. you still see that today because, you know, a lot of times I'll hear uh, with talking about my work and, you know, I talk about Hecate as world soul, like the Chaldean oracles Hecate, as opposed to, um, you know, any kind of specific thing that's like this, that people be like, well, I'm really afraid of Hecate. She's terrifying. And it's like, oh, of course, if you read this um, fictional description of Hecate, um, then you might be terrified of her. Yeah. So I find that so interesting. And I also like when I read this, so this is Roman. So later than like um, Hesiod's Theogony, which is like the, the glowing description of Hecate as a great mother figure, which I think is from the eighth century mm -hmm. or the common era, um, that you can kind of see by the time Hecate becomes like with the Romans, that this is who she is this yeah. terrifying who comes up from hell and you know just with her dogs taller than elephants yeah um, yeah crazy. you know it's like it's just she's so fierce and it's like like you know when we vilify the thing that we think is the most powerful and also the most dangerous like we vilify it the best yeah it's you true. know what i mean like when so it's like as the goddess became pushed aside to create like like they became less powerful over time and the male gods became more elevated and the great mother figure kind of became like Hera did this and Athena did that and so you know what I mean Artemis did this like everybody was very they had a very specific they were they were content area specialists yeah yeah right? it's really true yeah where and actually yeah go ahead and like the earlier records we have is like artemis was more diverse and hecate was more diverse and it was like kind of a local there'd be a local understanding of that goddess that could be like a great mother figure um mm -hmm. so you see this like kind of like basic kind of like she's becoming less powerful but in a way She's also like she's so powerful that we yeah. have you to need see to keep her a nightmare, right? She's a nightmare, of... right? Yeah. And then we get into like James Hillman in the modern era talking about Hecate and dream, the dream world. So you can mm. kind of see where this writing from two thousand years ago during the Roman era, like you can see how modern all white guy thinkers, very smart and a lot of good stuff there but like Aleister Crowley and Hillman, how this is the Hecate that they were influenced by. Yeah, yeah. And there are a couple, just I love everything that you've said. There are a couple of things that I want to point out in relation to this, because you can already see, and I love it when this happens in literature, because it kind of tells you how nothing is new. Like we think that our problems are new, but they're really not. Um, like a, this, this description, for example, of writhing snakes fell down in curls around her neck. Like, um, like it just makes me think of, if I'm reading that for the first time in that time, it's, or even now, it's hard for me to look at curly hair, wavy hair, you know, sort of like the crown of, you know, what was understood to be a woman and not think about snakes and not feel suspicious, maybe about my attraction or about her beauty, you know? And that's something that uh, we've talked about recently, like listening to the Ideas podcast, how beauty and ugliness in the story of Medusa both become things to become really suspicious of. So you already see the seeds of that here, how sort of like, because there's so much about hair, right? It's not even just that um, it can often be like, you know, like the longest flowing part of a woman's body. It's also like, it's a really good way to pass off pheromones, you know, like hair brushes by you and you have the smell that lingers there. It's a very effective trait um so there's this and the second thing that I wanted to point out was a this is a really because you were talking about the scope of Hecate and um I think that this is really cool because at the top of this slide um it mentions the the epithet Eresh Kigal mm -hmm. and this really is a good pointer to how old Hecate is um Eresh Kigal is the Sumerian goddess of the underworld like those stories are over like at least 10,000 years old, maybe older. Like Eresh Kigal is the sister of sort of the upper world life goddess Inanna. And um, the writings on Inanna are actually the first works of literature that we have that come from a priestess called Enhedwana, which is also something that most people don't know. But um, 
this relating Hecate to Hecate Ereshkigal, you know, that goddess of this fearsome underworld, um, kind of tells you she has an extremely long heritage that comes back, you know, that goes back to way, way, way before Greece. That's how old she is. And also, fun fact that makes me think of that um, that last epithet that we saw a couple slides ago, the uh, the bull snake epithet. Ereshkigal in the Sumerian myths is married to um, the white bull of heaven. So there's also that, that interesting relationship that still has resonances in later Hecate epithets. It's so interesting. And in the Greek magical papyri too, you know, Eresh Kagal is evoked like along mm. with Hecate. So yeah. there is this, I mean, when you, you think of the Greek magical papyri, that's purportedly like a practitioner who recorded their spells and rituals. Mm -hmm. which is very different than like a work, work of literature or, or, or a play, right? Yeah. But so in the Greek magical papyri that they're talking about Hecate or Eshkagal, like there is that, there's like a lineage there. There was like an understanding that she comes from that line. Yeah. Right? That that's who she is. So it's so interesting. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and then the, that whole flattening effect. And we still have people today who try to flatten and box, right? The expressions yeah. of the goddess and then be like, no, look, this goddess has that attribute and doesn't do that instead of just seeing it as an expression of the feminine principle. So, yeah. there's so yeah. much good stuff here. But this description of Hecate is amazing. It's crazy. And it's like, I want that to be like a Hollywood blockbuster. Like, I want to see it. I want to see yeah, it. We're like on your gravestone. <laughs> I want to see that. <laughs> I love it. Um, so we were talking about Circe last month. So of course we have to revisit Circe. So this time, instead of the Odyssey, I pulled from um, Metamorphoses. Mm -hmm. And again, it's a very, uh, yet another similar dis dep depiction of Hecate coming out of the ground. When Cersei summons her, she comes out of the ground and the woods are shattered. Um, and, you know, here she comes with all of her poison serpents. And this is a Hecate Trimorphous pendant from the Romans. So around the time of Ovid. Um, and you can see her again with her snakes beside her. Yeah. So much there. So there's a lot of these from literature, these references to Hecate. When she comes, she comes with snakes. Yeah, yeah. There's something so apocalyptic about these depictions of her power, which is also apt because I think that we think of apocalypse as purely destruction, but apocalypse, it also means revelation, right? Like yeah. the revealing of what's true. So going back to the hair issue, <laughs> thinking about the hair, um, so what Ogden has to say about the hair is he references where Sophocles also had things to say about Hecate and snakes. Um, so Hecate is garland with oak and the twisted coils of savage dracontes. Vilifying so, the hair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and, and Ogden says that he might be talking about Gorgonian snaky hair, like our Medusa hair, like the Gorgons had. Um, mm. You may have also been thinking about a headband made from snakes. And because she has that epithet that's like girt in serpents. So it's yeah. see like she has a serpent crown. Yeah. Um, which also is something that those amazing Aranes have too. Um, so Hecate is associated with snakes in many different configurations. This is a curse tablet. So if you're looking, you can see this image. I know it's difficult to see, but um, so this is a first century curse tablet. So Hecate has snakes for hair, back to her the hair. She has snakes for hair. And um, then she has this really interesting, so I always go back to this, she has this interesting like vulvic star. Interesting, yeah, that is really interesting. So again, so this is a, <clears throat> because when we were talking about like Ovid and so on, we're talking about literature. And then when we're talking about the PGM and curse tablets, we're talking about what people actually thought, right? Mm -hmm. 
so this is a depiction of Hecate as a person making a cursed tablet um, actually perceived her. So isn't that interesting? Yeah, the Vulvic Star has very origins of the world. And also, I went to the Greek Archaeological Museum the first time that I was in Athens, and they have tons of cursed tablets, like apart from pottery, like maybe cursed tablets are what they have almost the most of, like pottery and jewelry and cursed tablets. And you can just kind of picture like these petty people in your neighborhood, because a lot of these tablets are super petty. You know, <laughs> like they like these, like, you know, the brown nosing people in your neighborhood just like accruing all these little cursed <laughs> tablets. I'm going to write me a new cursed tablet. Yeah, Dear Hecate, <laughs> I cannot believe that that dog barks so much. Please exactly. curse that dog to no more bark. I like, cannot believe that my neighbor painted her front door purple. Curse her. <laughs> like, like, that's what a lot of them are like. They're not yeah, like these big, exactly. I curse all the horrible world or whatever. Like, there are a lot of binding, like, love curses, blah, blah, blah. But you said, like, you're right. A lot of them are just literally, like, they're grievances. Grievances yeah. being aired in a magical context. Yeah, she's like the Santa Claus of pettiness <laughs> when you're thinking of like first tablets. <laughs> Dear Hecate, that guy who was rude to me at the gas station, could you please make sure his feet fall off? Like it's like literally like this is exactly. the kind of stuff. Exactly. Like, you know, the one. <laughs> you know the one. It's just like a place to vent. I think that maybe that's what social media is a lot for a lot of people today. It's like a cursed, a cursed tablet. tablet. Yeah. yeah, definitely. It's a cursed tablet. Yeah, cursed I would people. Say. Social media is a cursed tablet. That could be the title of this. That's a great rereading of cancel culture, like the modern cursed tablet. That's a PhD, Cindy. That is a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> okay, carrying on with our Hecate snake dragon. Mm -hmm. um, so now like, I wanted to talk a little bit about, so he, Ogden gets more into the Greek, uh, sometimes he calls the Greek magical papyri, the Greek magical papyri, and then he's talking about something similar, but he calls it the great magical papyrus, which I haven't had a chance to kind of research to figure out why he uses the two. I kind of like, if yeah. he's saying it, I'm sure he's right. Um, I've never so heard he, of them. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So he talks about the epithet Dracana coming from the Greek magical papyri and uh, amongst a blizzard of others, which I love a blizzard because it is in these rituals in the Greek magical papyri, like the author just goes Ch -ch -ch -ch, like list everything off. Erish yeah. Kegel, Virgin, Dracana, Garland, Key, Herald, Golden Sandal. And again, this is just like us doing some kind of ritual where we just like say a whole bunch of things, platitudes. <laughs> it's true, right? It's true. <clears throat> I'm gonna just keep calling you to something, goddess, until you, I say the magic word and you give me what I want. Mm, yeah. Guy at the gas station really get on my nerves. Yeah, the many names of your god, like it's almost yeah. like if you dial the right number, like just keep dialing all the numbers. And once you dial the right one, you'll know. <laughs> Right. Or like if you read uh, tarot cards hmm. and you just you don't like what the card that you pull. So you just keep pulling till you get one you like. I just keep going to call keep calling the goddess different names until I get what I like. My tarot cards are remarkably resistant to that strategy. And I, they just would like think, will not. You would think the goddess would be as well. Mm hmm. When so I, in the Greek magical papyri, like the hymn to Hecate, Selene, but then they're talking about Persephone and Ereshkegal, like they're all over the place. They're just like, anybody help me, please. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and then referencing like that Chaldean Hecate, which is more like Hecate as a concept of the feminine principle that is the soul of the world. Hmm. Um, that this also she's called Dracana in the Chaldean Oracles. So the Chaldean Oracles are a collection of existing fragments um, from around the term, like when the common era started to a, a couple of centuries after. But then also there's this text from the 12th century, so more in the medieval period, that talks about 
um, Hecate as a Draconna in that kind of philosophical sense. Yeah. But then he makes a really interesting, like kind of statement about Artemis. So oftentimes in different, by different authors in different places, Artemis, Hecate were kind of one and the same. Yeah. And um, says that, so it's the Ecomium on St. John who reminds us that the saint shattered the Drykana Artemis fighting in single combat with the trophy of the cross. This is so Book of Revelations. You know, the fight with the yeah. dragon, with the with the great red whore, like yeah. on his on the dragon's back. Like this is this is what that is. Yeah, yeah. So these are where these ideas keep like they keep cropping up, right? It's yeah. very Book of Revelations. Yeah. And it's like this great dragon that is the feminine principle, like what is truly terrifying to a certain type of masculinity is the great dra Dracana. Yeah. So Book of Revelation. Yeah. So he goes on to say that this is just more of a way just to demonize the pagan goddess. Which Call her dragon. Sense. Dragons are snakes. Dragons and snakes are evil. They're horrible. We kill them, etc. They're not yeah. our friends. Um, and it's really like interesting, like with, I would say like with the rise of dragons in like video games and movies and books, they've kind of returned and they're not evil anymore. That's right? true. Yeah. They're getting kind of a revisit. But I, I also remember when I was a kid, I remember watching Serendipity, the pink dragon, you know. Right. So that's in the, you're in the modern era. Like you're not like you're. <laughs> I'm Israel. We're talking about three thousand years of history. I didn't realize that was the scale we were working from. Yes, <laughs> I thought you just meant like the history. Last when I was a child in the '80s, I watched this cartoon. No, <laughs> uh, for me, and for me, I'm like in the in the modern era. I'm thinking like from 1900 to today. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> like now that we have our definitions okay we, we've defined what the modern era is <laughs> after the victorians okay so it wasn't like just in the last 2000s <laughs> like no. just, there was yeah. a world before the 2000s <laughs> and of course and we have like game of thrones mother mm. of dragons yeah. and it's interesting like this whole like because these stories like how they are told in a society, how Dracana is seen in a society. When you look at how Dracana is portrayed in Game of Thrones, the mother of dragons, right? Mm -hmm. As this strong female character, like it's just, there's so much yeah. there. But she becomes like crazy and dangerous at the, right? sorry, spoilers, but it's been a long time. Everybody should have watched it all by now. Should have watched it. Yeah. And you know, yeah, she gets punished. Eventually. Right, so she doesn't get to be, I mean, even in Game of Thrones, like, the, the female characters with power have to suffer, so there is that kind of version, but there's also, like, a lot of admiration for that character. Yeah. And there was, a, I think if I remember correctly, there was, like, outrage at how her character arc ended. I was outraged. It was incredibly outrageous. Yeah. Because that's yeah. not, but, the, you know, because that's not where it was going, it was, like, reclaiming Dracana, she is going to take her throne and all will be well. Hmm. And then it didn't happen. Yeah. And then they put her inside that lineage of mental illness running in her family, which is another problem. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That often happens to women, you know, like Medusa, which, you know, like, uh, different figures, like the, the woman has to be crazy. Yeah. Hysteria. Right. Your hysteria. Yeah. So this is a bit, it's like our slide is now a bit, and it, we are talking about this and the slide is saying something slightly different. I wanted to put, like kind of do a historical, you know, different images of, of the goddess, specifically Hecate and snakes. So we're back, we went back another 2000 years, just so you know, we're back to the Romans, or this is, sorry, this is Attican, this is from Greece. Yeah. Um, and this is a bowl that depicts the Persephone story. 
which mm. is it's bedecked with um you know circling snakes or ouroboros and then what's probably little snakes in the filigree around it too so although in the story typically hecate isn't depicted as having snakes but in this all around like the whole story there are snakes I just love as well how you know you have these these trees lining the bowl and the snakes act as a border between the trees, the upper world, and all the action happening ostensibly in the underworld. I think that's yeah, really so cool. true, right? Because that that is where all the action is happening. Yeah. So it's great. Um, it's a like a a Megarian bowl or an incantation bowl or you know different types of bowls that were used. So I want you know I love my bowls. Mm. So I had to include a bowl picture. Excellent. I also love my vases, my ancient vases. So I tried to find some different images of Hecate with snakes that maybe we haven't like popularly seen. So this mm. is another one from the British Museum of her um, on an amphora telling the story of Ptolemos, who is like the high priest guy who reigned over the um, rituals at Eleusis. Because I know sometimes Hecate, well, a lot of times Hecate is left out when discussions on the rituals at Eleusis are had, like it's just about Persephone and Demeter. But Hecate yeah. was also, I mean, it, it seems like Hecate was a really key fi uh, figure in yeah. these rituals as well as this liminal go between, you know, Demeter, who was the above ground and Persephone, the below ground and Triptolemos, of course, was kind of like the boss of all of this. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So we have two, like the Ouroboros and Hecate right here on the handle, you know, representing like the energy, you know, like if the pot has no handle, how are you going to get it anywhere? Yeah. Yeah. I love this. Yeah. I think that there's a whole slideshow on this one amphora and the images are absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. This is a universe. But the positioning of Hecate on the handle and then wrapping the snakes around the handle, like, you know, for the artist would have been expressing some very specific ideas about Hecate, right? Yeah, the regenerative aspect, the liminal aspect, heal and harm. So this, you know, you have to approach with respect. You don't know what you're going to get. Like, there's so much there. There's so there much is. there. So I think that takes us to the end of our meanderings through the thicket of snakes surrounding Hecate and also goddesses in general. We are in a few weeks going to be recording an episode on Medusa, which we're super excited about. Um, and maybe we can just finish by kind of situating, because we haven't really contextualized this business with snakes. Mm -hmm. And sure. I know you revisited like Leonard Schlein and some of our other favorite authors yeah so i mean it all like this the tipping point i think would be the garden of eden yeah yeah definitely so recently i was rereading um i have a bible i think it's a it's the uh, it's the new english standard version it's it's a translation that didn't exist when i was young so i don't actually <laughs> it's new um but uh, I reread the Garden of Eden story to kind of like what you were alluding to earlier, right? Like to, to kind of get to the bottom of and better understand what happened here and what the story is actually about. Um, the Garden of Eden story is really interesting. I'm sure most of you know it, like um, God makes the world um, in seven days. He makes man um, from man's rib, he makes Eve. And then of course in the garden, he places the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. They're not supposed to eat it. Um, and then you have the snake who comes and uh, the serpent, he, it's described, it's immediately described upon its arrival as the craftiest of all the animals. Um, bearing in mind, this is a translation, but crafty is an interesting word because it, it says something about this animal's intelligence, but it's also pejorative, right? Like, so this is, this is a really interesting way to position knowledge, which kind of sets the stage for, for the rest of the story. And it speaks to Eve directly. 
One thing worth mentioning about the Garden of Eden story is that it doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? It comes from a long lineage of, um, well, a couple of lineages actually. One, it comes from a lineage of what are called menstrual stories. Um, there's this great book called Red Moon. I think the author is Miranda Gray. I'll double check that later. Um, which kind of better explains this lineage. Like there were these stories that older women would tell younger women who were on the cusp of womanhood to explain to them what they were going to inherit in terms of knowledge and relationship to the earth and just the, the general idea of feminine mysteries. And these stories often had common components. Um, there was often a snake, a fruit that was red. Sometimes there were like drops of red blood in the snow. Snow White and Sleeping Beauty also come from this lineage. So the Garden of Eden is very much of this particular lineage of menstruation stories. One of the things that happens is um, when we pass from an oral storytelling culture to a literary things written down culture, um, we get more patriarchy. There are a lot of like theories about why this happens. Like Leonard Schlein is like, he probably gave the best theory <laughs> about why this happened. <laughs> he wrote a whole book about it. Um, but, uh, but essentially, when these stories get passed down to us, um, they're coming out of the oral tradition and then they get written down and hardened and they get written down specifically by men um, in their particular context with their particular worldview. So these stories get changed, right? And then they become less about, here's what you're going to inherit in terms of like the importance, like the heal and harm and the regenerative nature and the responsibility of what it is to enter the world as a woman. And they become something, uh, in the case of common fairy tales, they become more chivalry stories. Like mm -hmm. the woman just needs like a man to wake her up um, by molesting her while she's sleeping. And, yeah, and, um, or they become stories directly related to punishment when you try to reach for this knowledge. And um, the Garden of Eden story is very much of the latter. You know, the snake talks to Eve and it's like, why can't you eat of this tree? And Eve says, because we will die. And uh, the snake says, this is not true. Um, it's actually a knowledge tree and you will acquire all the knowledge that this God has. Um, it also merits mentioning that in the New Testament, like the Old Testament, excuse me, stories of the Bible, um, this is not really a monotheistic culture. God never explicitly says there are no other gods. <laughs> They don't exist. He just wants you to focus on him. Um, so there's like, you know, a pantheon of other gods out there that God doesn't want you to focus on. But basically the snake is saying, you know, this guy just kind of like wants you in his camp, but once you acquire all the knowledge, like maybe you don't need him really. Like that's one reading of the story in fact. Um, and so uh, Eve eats the fruit, Adam eats the fruit. Obviously they realize they're naked. God notices. <laughs> Um, and he's like, what's wrong with you guys? And he like he realizes that they've eaten of this fruit. And uh, the really interesting thing about this is, um, again, returning to what Cindy and I have alluded to over the course of this video, which is um, serpents have an ancient relationship to the feminine principle and to goddess culture. And um, and it's particular sort of vilification in Christianity because the devil does not exist yet. The devil does not actually exist in the story. The serpent is just a serpent. That devil thing gets applied to it later. Um, is really a call to what the serpent needs to become in order for Christianity to succeed. Um, and uh, so the first thing God does is he punishes the serpent and then he punishes Eve. And uh, one of the interests, like what I noticed about his punishments were um, they precisely mirror each other. Um, he says to the serpent, okay, so now you're cursed. You will forever like crawl on your belly. You will eat dirt and um, your relationship to man will be corrupted. You know, he will step on your head and you will bite his heel. Like you will, you're not gonna get along. You're gonna be enemies. And then he turns to Eve and he says, uh, childbirth is going to hurt you like which kind of mirrors this whole like you're going to crawl in the dirt on your belly and you're going to eat dust like you know this relationship to the belly and to punishment is very clear and then the next thing he says is um you're going to feel contrary to your man to your husband but you will also be submitted to him and when you take into account that all men come from women 
Essentially, the punishment for Eve and the serpent is the same. The children of men, men in general, you will be punished by them. And it will be your role to be kind of like under their heel, like under their feet, even as you're like trying to bite upward. Um, which is quite a common characterization of women, in fact, like that's how the Pandora story was corrupted, mm. right? Like she's just like snipey and bitchy and horrible, <laughs> um, even as she's beautiful and clever. Like, uh, so you, you have the seeds of that already here. But again, the story is not designed in a vacuum. There's a very similar story to this in, a, in Sumerian mythology, where in fact, a lot of Old Testament stories come from, yeah. you know, they're sort of like, cause myths move and they change. Um, where Inanna, again, the goddess of the overworld gets into a big fight with a mountain called Ibe and she kicks its ass. And then she goes and like talks to her dad, the sun god on because you know, like he's always proud of her and she's his favorite. Um, but An gets really upset with her in this instance. He says, you really need to walk this back. And the reason is because Ibe at the, at the tip of the, of the mountain peak has an untouchable garden where everything is blooming all the time. And it's totally resistant to the volatilities of nature, to the volatilities of Inanna, in fact. And, uh, and this is kind of like the early precursor to this story. And yeah, like, so this is really, this is kind of an ancient conflict that kind of separates humanity from nature, but also sets us up for this sort of conflict between men and women. It's very, very old, but it's not necessarily that old compared to larger human history. You know, it's just, what we know because we tend to focus on civilization happening when literacy happens. And that's when, like at the time that the Sumerian priestess of Enhedwana is writing these stories, she's literally straddling um, the place where oral culture is meeting literary culture for the first time. And we just kind of throw out everything that happened before that, like everything that happened in the oral storytelling universe, because we're like, that wasn't civilization. That was like a dark time. Who knows what happened there? <laughs> but um, humanity lived and was in fact civilized and was sharing knowledge and mysteries and these kinds of stories, like, you know, like in mutated versions, constantly mutating versions of these stories for thousands of years before that. And yeah, so when we're thinking about snakes and we're thinking about the Medusa, obviously we'll talk more about just sort of like the crazy depth of the Medusa in relation to all of this later. Um, like you have to take all of that into account. Like there's a very, it's recent in the human story. There's a conditioning that's happened um, where the snake kind of gets altered. And it's part of the stories that form the bedrock of our culture. Um, the writer, David Graeber, he just, um, he recently died, but he wrote um, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. Basically what he said was, uh, you know, when you're talking about history and you're talking about societal problems, um, like the question people tend to ask is like, where did it all go wrong? You know, right. and yeah. what they're actually asking is, um, you know, when did we bite the apple? It's always coming back to this biblical origin story. So it's really useful and important to take into consideration um, what was actually nested inside that story from a sort of like a political meaning perspective. And how, you know, that story, like it's still with us, even if someone isn't raised like in a Christian church, yeah, they still everywhere. probably know who Adam and Eve are and that, you know, terrible things befell the world because Eve succumbed to the temptation of the snake. And so yeah. there is this kind of persistent idea, not only that serpents are, like you said, the serpents and women are the same, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of like, and this isn't about like any one individual believing this, it's about like a cultural kind of value where you know women are seen as more base, more less than, but also like you said, all life comes from us. So mm -hmm. I think there's this contradiction that's always with the feminine principle 
like however that expresses us, whether it's in our gender or if we don't identify as female, you know, it's how we experience the feminine in our society. Like there is always this whore Madonna thing. You know, there is always this like the serpent, you know, she's the serpent that poisons, but she's the serpent that could also heal. You know, there's that, there's this thing that is always at work. And like you said, it's all about like, there's those menstruation stories that, you know, were flipped on their heads instead of being like kind of beautiful stories of uh, under, like to help women understand their bodies and their natural cycles to being like in the hands of men who recorded them when it became like vilifying and disempowering to, to women. There's so much into all of this to explore. And yeah. I hope um, for everybody watching us that you've been inspired. We're also reading a really interesting and super accessible book. Angela and I often throw around a lot of academic texts that maybe are a little bit drier, but if you want a great book that kind of is like an entry point into exploring these ideas, I do recommend uh, the book Cassandra Speaks, which we're reading this month in the school in Covina. So Cassandra Speaks is by the phenomenal writer, activist, visionary, Elizabeth Lesser, who founded the Omega Institute. So I highly recommend Cassandra Speaks if you want to kind of pursue some of the ideas that we've been talking about in the context of the serpent goddess and the the feminine, this the snake and the feminine, right? Like yeah. that's what is this all about? And where are we now? Like after all of these years and where do, how do we go forward from here? Yeah. So and apologies if we spoil Game of Thrones for you. Thanks so much. I mean, but it's been so long. It's been so long. <laughs> All right. There's, there's a statute of limitations on spoilers. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for watching. Thanks, Bye. Everybody. Bye.